from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Our first scripture. Our first scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 2, verse 23, through chapter 3, verse 6. Please turn with me to page 34 of the New Testament. Listen for and hear the word of God. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need of food? He entered the house of God when Abiathar was high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. And he gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for humankind and not humankind for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there who had a withered hand. They watched him to see whether he would hear him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, Come forward. Then he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. He looked around them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately conspired with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Friends, would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we begin our uh, summer preaching series on Mark's Jesus, and in preparation for this series, I started thinking about C.S. Lewis. In particular, I started thinking about one of C.S. Lewis's most famous characters, Aslan the Lion, the ruler in the Chronicles of Narnia series. Throughout the books, uh, Aslan is described in, in various ways, but one way in particular stands out for me. At one point, one of the characters in talking about Aslan says, he is not tame but he is good. He is not tame, but he is good. What I think we will discover throughout this summer series is that Mark's Jesus is no tame prophet. He is no tame rabbi, no tame teacher. He is no tame God, human one. What we will also discover is that Jesus is good. That Jesus is good. And we will 
continue to trace this ancient story week by week, and we will see that Jesus' goodness really has no limits. So we begin in Mark chapter 2 and 3. And in both stories that we heard read this morning, the one about plucking grain and the one concerning the healing of a man's withered hand, the presenting issue is Sabbath keeping. As one of the Ten Commandments given to Moses on Mount Sinai, keeping the Sabbath holy was a requirement for the people. No work was to be done on the Sabbath to honor the truth that rest is part of the creation story. That rest is part of the creation saga. That Genesis tells us that God rested after God created the heavens and the earth. The Sabbath is a day that the faithful rest. And in their resting, they turn toward God and worship and praise and pray and recognize God on the Sabbath. They recognize God as the sole author and sustainer of life itself. The Sabbath also reminds the faithful that life is not exclusively measured by what someone produces on the other six days. That's a word I think many of us living here in Atlanta need to hear, that our identity ultimately is not concerned or not ultimately defined, better said, by the six days of production that we have from week to week, but ultimately Our identity is defined in Sabbath rest as we acknowledge and as we trust that God is the one that needs to act. God is the one that needs to create. God is the one that needs to liberate. And we are reliant on God's activity. Not our own activity, but we are reliant on God's activity to make a way. That's what Sabbath is all about. So in this first story, Jesus and his disciples are are walking through a field on the Sabbath when they begin to pick grain to feed themselves, a natural act. They're hungry, they see some food, and they partake. But according to the Pharisees, what we would deem to be an innocent act is actually a transgression against the law. Picking grain on the Sabbath constituted work. So as the Pharisees confront Jesus, he makes his defense and he turns to the scriptures. 1 Samuel 21, in fact, where he tells the story of the shepherd boy, David. After he's fallen out of favor with King Saul, King Saul is angry at David. He's he's bloodthirsty for David. He wants David dead. He sends out his army to kill David and David is on the lamb, pun intended. You didn't get The other two services laughed at that joke. <laughs> 11 o'clock, not as funny. Okay. So he's, he's on the run. And, and Saul is after him. And they're hungry. He and his companions, they're, they're hungry. And, and they come to the, the temple. And, and there is the bread of presence. It's a holy bread. It's a, it's a sacred bread. It's a consecrated bread. And that bread was only to be consumed by the priest himself. But the priest shares the bread with David and his companions. And Jesus, in telling this story, is saying, I am the priest. I'm the one who satisfies hunger, even on the Sabbath day. 
New Testament scholar Matt Skinner describes Jesus' defense in these words, and I think he nails it here when he says that Jesus contends that sometimes certain demands of the law are rightly set aside in favor of pursuing greater values or meeting greater needs, especially when those greater needs promote a person's well-being and facilitate the arrival of God's blessings. The same insight is applicable to the man with a withered hand. The Pharisees have their eyes fixed on Jesus once again. Will he work on the Sabbath? Will he heal on the Sabbath day? He knows it's all a trap, and so he calls the man forward, and he has him stand in front of all the Pharisees, and he says to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? And Mark cleverly says the Pharisees were silent. Perhaps their silence originates in their knowledge of the answer, because the answer is Obvious, They know what the right answer is. And Jesus knows as well. And he heals the man on the Sabbath day. And in doing so, he brings new life to him. And this story is sort of a, a foretaste of, of the kind of creative and liberating healing God wants to do for all people. It's, it's just a, a, a glimpse into God's eternal mission to bring this kind of healing and wholeness into the world. And these two scenes right off the bat are a preview of what is to come in Mark's gospel. Did you notice in Mark's gospel that there are no baby pictures? There's no birth narratives in Mark's gospel. He gets right to it, and he wants everybody to know that Jesus is not tame, but he is so good. He will not be tamed by the legalistic applications of the law. He will not be tamed by the Pharisees' expectations of him. And he is good because his moral frame the way he lives his life from a moral perspective promotes God's creative and liberating work. Jesus is not tame, but he is good. Now, I want to pivot here because I think it's quite difficult to appreciate the dissonance and controversy Jesus actually stirs within these two Sabbath stories. 2,000 years later, we think it's a no-brainer. Of course, we should side with Jesus. After all, we're in church and, and we're Christians. Certainly the Pharisees got it wrong here. But there was great debate. There was great controversy. There was great dissonance in these actions of Jesus. And I am wondering if today we would open ourselves up as individuals, but also as a church to a deeper awareness of this controversy, that we would be willing to open ourselves up to feel the dissonance, to feel the tension and the division to help us understand a deeper truth within this text. And to help us to do that, I thought it would, might be uh, interesting by way of illustration to think of NFL players protesting the national anthem. Are you with me? You want to talk about that? Many players uh, say they're motivated by their faith, 
They say they have a sense of patriotism as they take a knee during the anthem to bring attention to unjust structures and practices against African-Americans, particularly African-American men that continue to find its root in systemic racism. But then you have a segment of the population who are appalled at such demonstrations. And, and they see it as an affront, as an offense to our flag, to the anthem, to our military, to our country. Maybe you don't want to talk about NFL players, but maybe you'll be willing to talk about Kim Davis. Do you remember Kim Davis? A couple years ago, she was that county clerk in Kentucky who refused to issue marriage licenses to gay couples after the Supreme Court rendered their verdict, making it legal for gay couples to marry nationwide. Remember how so many people were holding her up as an icon, as a champion for religious freedom, as she talked about her Christian faith as being an impediment for her to issue these marriage licenses? Remember that? And remember how she was willing to go to jail, which she did? for breaking the law? But do you also remember the many others who hailed her as a bigot? Do you remember those who, who said that she should be removed from public office if she can't fulfill the requirements of the job? Do you want to talk about NFL players? How about Kim Davis? As I brought these two illustrations up, I want to know, not out loud, but sort of in a rhetorical sense, I want to know what you felt. I want to know how you feel. And, I, and I'm sure that, that the diversity of feelings are, are well represented here in a diverse body like uh, this one. But what did you experience as I started to talk about these two things, these two conversation points? I suspect, by just looking at you, I could tell, but I suspect that for some of you, you, you became a little uneasy as the preacher begins to wade in some controversial waters. You're thinking, oh, I hope he doesn't go there. Well, I know you were. Some of you even wondered, I, I wonder if he's going to make a judgment. I wonder if he's going to say something about NFL players or about the Kim Davises of the world. I, I want you to, to package that unease, that Presbyterian uncomfortableness. I want you to feel it. I want you to own it. And I want you to multiply it a hundredfold. And then we'll start to get close to the tension and the dissonance between Jesus and the Pharisees. Don't lose that feeling. I want you to hold on to it through the rest of the sermon. Don't lose that awareness. Don't lose that perspective, for it helps us to embrace one of the fundamental truths of Mark's gospel. Following Jesus does not produce a controversial free faith. Following Jesus does not produce a contentionless journey or a community that is absent of, of dissonance or challenge. On the contrary, following Jesus will create dissonance from time to time. Following Jesus on occasion will actually create crisis. 
Following Jesus will sometimes have you upending cultural norms and expectations and on occasion even breaking with what the law requires in favor of God's greater good. Mark gets to the heart of it right away in chapter 2 and chapter 3. Following Jesus is dangerous. For Jesus is not tame, but he is good. Now, I want to be crystal clear on this next point. This is not controversy for controversy's sake. I also want to be clear that the Christian in an act of subversion is not always right. We have to remember that. Not every act of subversion is justified by the gospel. And so for the Christian, there must be a, a humility. There, there must be a prayerful discernment, a thoughtfulness in trying to understand where Jesus' moral frame originates, how Jesus actually sees the world, how he acts ethically and morally on the stage of life. For this Jesus is our measure and he is our ultimate judge. That's what the Christian confesses. And as we meet him throughout this journey in Mark, we will discover that his moral frame, something that he calls the kingdom of heaven, translated as the kingdom of God, we, we see that his moral frame is rooted in embrace, not exclusion. We see it rooted in forgiveness, not revenge. We see it rooted in healing, not destruction. We see it rooted in justice, not the status quo. We see it rooted in neighborly love, and not self-centered interests that are so often concerned with power, position, and dominance. That is his moral frame. That's how Jesus sees the world. And anybody who bears his name is required to take on that frame as well. I'd like to close with a story from our own church's history as a way to illumine the point I'm I'm trying to make. On Sunday, August 7th, 1960, the first strategic and the first fully organized kneel-ins occurred at prominent churches here within our beloved city, here in Atlanta. Many of you, some of you, were members of the church then, and some of you remember those days. Now, First Presbyterian was marked as one of those churches where a kneel-in would take place. Ashley Kiros noted in an article that appeared this past week in the Washington Post, some of you may have seen it, where she talks about kneel-ins and, and how they originated in this nonviolent conviction as a way to confront Southern Christians with the incompatibility of the gospel and the policies of segregation. And she wrote this in this article in the Post. At the time, most churches in the Deep South were rigidly segregated with quote-unquote closed-door policies, barring black Americans from worshiping with white congregations. Seeing this as an affront to both racial justice and Christian community, these students were determined to integrate the city's white congregations. If permitted, they would enter and worship quietly. If rebuffed, they would kneel and pray in the front of the church. 
Now, during this time, sessions and, and vestries and church boards got wind because there were groups already starting to do this. It was far less organized. They got wind that these, these groups were coming to these all-white churches wanting to worship in these sacred spaces. And so these boards started meeting and asking the question, what are we going to do if and when that happens at our church? First Presbyterian had a session meeting Harry Fifield was the senior pastor at the time. And at this particular session meeting, this very issue was the topic of discussion. The conversation by all accounts, and I heard one eyewitness account this week of somebody who was on session at that time, who's still a member of this congregation, said it was contentious. It was controversial. There were some on the session who didn't want blacks worshiping in this sanctuary. They said that we should create a security force out on Peachtree Street that would bar black visitors from coming in to worship. There were some who wanted to avoid any hint of controversy, wanted to avoid any potential division in the church. They wanted to avoid conversations about race because they were too political for the church. They weren't spiritual enough for the ministries to which we've been called. There were others, however, who were absolutely convinced that we needed to be the kind of church that Jesus wanted us to be. To quote the prophet Isaiah, my house shall be a house of prayer for all people. Those who argued for inclusion, they wanted to train the, the ushers to seat people equally without prejudice or judgment. Now, there are some elders who have served or are currently serving as I have uh, been the moderator of session. And, and sometimes our session meetings go long, but nothing compared to this one. Just take note. It ended at 2 a.m. 2 a.m. in the morning as they prayed and as they discerned when they finally came to the consensus that every person would be welcomed in this space. Every person was welcome to worship at the First Presbyterian Church. In the end, they sought after the moral frame of Jesus. In the end, it wasn't the law that motivated them. It certainly wasn't conventional wisdom that motivated them. It was Jesus. In that moment, he was their measure and their judge. Back to Sunday, August 7, 1960. The first organized kneel-ins are launched and about midway through the service, Eight members of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee suddenly appeared and they scattered themselves in the pews in this sanctuary. Dr. Fifield, in one account, said that at first the congregation was quite startled. One student sat down to a woman named, uh, next to a woman rather, named Sue Thomas in the seat that she was saving for her husband. Her husband's name was Don, and Don must have been ushering at the time, midway through the service. He hadn't taken his seat yet. Thinking Don had joined her, in fact, it was one of the students that sat next to her, she reached out her hand and patted the boy on his knee. Don said that that guy got the warmest welcome of any kneel-in student on that day in Atlanta. When Mrs. Thomas realized that it wasn't her husband, Don, <laughs> she smiled at the young man and worshiped with him. One of the elders, a man by the name of Bob Kyle, was at the door as 
as students left. And he said to them, when you come back, not if you come back, but, but when you come back, and this was a very Presbyterian thing to say, when you come back, please be on time. <laughs> because we'd love to seat you wherever you wish to be seated. A note was left by one of the students for Dr. Fifield and the session. They read it at the next session meeting. From the students again, it read in part, as believers in the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man, we humbly seek to worship with you in fulfillment of Christ's commandment that his children may be one in him, even as he is one in God. Dr. Fifield was proud that the students came to First Presbyterian Church that day, but he also wrote about how proud he was of the congregation and that August 7th, 1960 was the best day of his ministry, was the most proud he had ever been of this church. He wrote that with his own pen, his own words. It was the best day for this church as they welcome these students to worship and they welcome them to come back. But friends, let us not kid ourselves. Not all the churches in Atlanta welcomed black students that day. What is more, there were members of the First Presbyterian Church who made August 7th, 1960, the last day they would occupy these pews. There were those who refused to continue as members of this church if this church was going to be integrated. And from that day to this one, we as a congregation have not always had days like August 7th, 1960. Far from it. We haven't always opted for Jesus' moral frame. But here is the good news, church. God's grace is sufficient to choose Jesus' moral frame today and then to choose it again tomorrow and then to choose it the next day after that and every day God gives us to be church. Knowing that we follow an untamed and good God, we know that faith and community life will not be void of conflict or controversy. But here's the thing, and if you don't remember anything else, remember this. Here's the thing. When the church follows this untamed and good Jesus, when the church chooses his moral frame of inclusion, forgiveness, healing, justice, and neighborly love, that church is always on the right side of history because it's always on the right side of God. Those decisions are hardly ever void of controversy. Show me a church acting out of Jesus' moral frame at any point in history, and I will show you a church that experienced dissonance, that experienced possibly even division. But if you show me that same church, I will also show you a church that has been deemed throughout the pages of history as a church that was faithful. And so in our pursuit of being faithful as a church to the untamed and good Jesus, may we expect controversy. May we expect dissonance, even as we expect his grace to sustain our call to take on his moral frame in these days and in any day that is ahead of us. May it be so for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world. Amen. Thank you.